dude that said that is like, I'm just trying to do my job. Yeah. Like, I'm not even going anywhere fun, guys. Yeah, that's when we dipped out and we were like, lunch sounds great right now. Because we'd already been there for like two hours, so. It's hot. Guess what? And you did what you wanted to do and got yeah. it off your list. Yes, ma'am. Mm-hmm. Yes, ma'am, I did. Woohoo! Enacting our rights. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Woo. And got some I'm proud of you guys. So 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 Sarah, what's up? <laughs> Not much, lady. <laughs> you guys just like so hyped. You, you should have had a megaphone for your protest. Honestly, I always forget I own a microphone. Yeah, it's rose gold, battery operated. Well, not battery operated. Whatever, a plug in. It's great. I always forget I have it. Ugh. Maybe I'll just keep it on my nightstand so every day I know. Like, oh, hey. like a karaoke one yeah. with like the speaker. I have that too. Mm-hmm. Damn. Mm-hmm. Keep it on my nightstand. <laughs> Who goes there? <laughs> Someone's in the house, Clayton. <laughs> and he's Alert. like laying right oh, next to you. You, know what? you could be like, a, just start barking with like the echo on, like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And no one coming to my house. <laughs> yeah, that'd be good. Yeah, we're recording, aren't we? Sure. Oh yeah, yeah. we've been yeah. recording. Yeah. I knew that before I started. Mm-hmm. That's okay. But it's Aaron's episode. Aaron. Yeah, I'm Aaron. I'm Sarah. I'm Morgan. And this is Sinister Sunrise. And this is my episode. We love mm-hmm. it. Are you doing Do Guardian you? Angels? No. Oh. That was last week, homie. Oh. Yeah. Does it have a good ending? <sighs> oh my god. I mean, do you want to see ourselves out now, or... You don't I'm just want... going to put my head down. It's fine. <laughs> These are the people you don't want to be guardian angels, so... Oh, that no. Yeah. I wonder if you do enough bad deeds, does your guardian angel leave you? Because <laughs> there's some terrible people. <laughs> Mic drop. I'm out. <laughs> like, maybe if you hit a certain threshold, they dip. Yeah. Your good is significantly outweighed your bad for the, like, majority of your life. Yeah. I'm out. There's no coming back. There's no coming back. Could be... Aaron, are there, these people are, they have no guardian angel, they are not a guardian angel. Both. Ooh, who are they? I would say both. Okay, so today I am covering the toolbox killers and... Not the toy box. No. Now you already did that. No, but this is Thank also gosh. another another story that Megan wanted me to cover, so... Oh, should we be concerned with Megatron? We should, because she also sent me another one that is also oh awful, so... Oh, my God. oh no. <laughs> if any therapy wants to sponsor us... Better help? Yeah. Out there. <laughs> we need you. Yes, I need it after everything I watched oh, and read. Great. Yeah. And I mean, with all of, like, my stories and topics, I always feel, like, weird giving a warning because I'm like, it's all not good... This one especially, so if you feel like you want to skip mine, because there will be talk of rape um, and torture, so go for it. Um, I don't blame you. Thank you for saying that at the top of the episode. Yeah, thank you. No, no problem. Yep, I mean, yep. thanks a lot. I mean, we can't get away, but you know, thanks. <laughs> thank you. I had to research it. You have to listen. <laughs> We're trauma bonded now, so it's fine. Yeah. Technically, you should blame Megan. Low-key, we are kind of trauma-bonded. Yeah. Like, for all the stuff we go through, all of our microphone disasters, I mm-hmm. mean, traumatic stuff. TB, TB, TB. <laughs> we love it. On my list, 30 before 30, one of them is getting a tattoo. <gasps> it's going to be TB. <laughs> Wait, is it really? The tattoo bit. Or, not getting that tattoo. Tattoo bit? But I do want to- <laughs> Oh my god. It all triangles back. Wait, are you really getting <laughs> one? In the next year, I'd like to get one. Oh, cool. What will it be? I don't know. I want to go with you. Okay. Sure. There you go. We'll be big, small. Where's it going to be at? 
Small. It's going to be one freckle. <laughs> a little, I got a little heart on my chest right here. You can get a, little, a heart like, on your beauty hip. mark. <laughs> yeah. Get a, get, get, you could get some freckles mm-hmm. tattooed across your face. Oh, yeah. yeah. I could never imagine. Like, I get like the cosmetic facial tattoos, but I just... I mean, my grandma has her eyeliner tattooed on and like... That freaks me out. I know. A needle that close to your eye? Yeah. Like, that scares me. No. I don't I, even want anyone to do LASIK. That freaks me out as well. I want... Oh, I do want to I'm do I'm leaning LASIK. more towards it, but like I watched it and I... We only have these two jelly sacks on our face. It only takes a couple minutes. You're in, you're out. Sarah? Well, it's like a laser. Jelly sacks. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, Peanut butter jelly time. Oh, my God. Anyways. <laughs> toolbox killing murder? Killers. Kill- oh, yeah, toolbox I was wondering why you wanted killers. to get back to it. Yeah. Mm. yeah. It's the jelly sacks for me. I'm stalling. <laughs> Um, October 31st, 1979, we're in Sunland, California. 16-year-old Shirley Lynette Ledford is at a Halloween party with her boyfriend when they get into an argument. Her boyfriend leaves the party, and now that she's stranded with no ride home, she decides to hitchhike back. The next morning, a woman is out jogging when she spots Lynette's nude body in a bed of ivy. A coat hanger tightened to the size of a silver dollar was around her neck. What? Yeah. So that's how, like, tight it was. Mm-hmm. Police determined she was killed within hours of leaving the party. They question the boyfriend, but quickly rule him out since he has an alibi. An autopsy confirms Lynette died of strangulation, but she had also suffered from blunt force, trauma to her head, and various parts of her body. She had also been sexually assaulted. According to Wikipedia, her attacker had likely used an implement on her since um, her genitalia and rectum were torn. Oh. Yeah. So disgusting, terrible. Uh, Lack of evidence stalls the case for weeks until Los Angeles police receive a call from a man named Joseph Jackson. Jackson tells them that he had recently reconnected with a former cellmate of his, 31-year-old Roy Norris, who had told him some very disturbing information. Nora said that he, along with another man named Lawrence Bittaker, had picked up Lynette in their silver 1977 GMC van and had raped, tortured, and murdered her. Oh my god. I'm sorry, why? Does this just come up for criminals, like, over dinner and drinks? He just felt like telling someone, I guess. You know what? I'm not even upset. Tell somebody. I will say, I thought about that a lot, too, on, like, when I watch true crime stuff, when I listen to your stories, Aaron. I mean, the thing is, is if you're in jail... And like you gotta you gotta have some credit because otherwise you're gonna get the crap beat out of you in prison. So like the more stories you can have, like if you like a snitch or something like that, yeah, sometimes can aid in your but success in prison. Are they in prison right nope. now? You mm-hmm. said former, oh. yeah, former, yeah, yeah. In so prison, I get out and about in oh. the in the like, community. How was your weekend? See any fireworks? No, oh. yeah, killed someone. So he's just oh. outwardly saying, yeah, me and this Bittaker guy, we killed her. What the fuck? And he's like, oh, okay. Um, and Jackson didn't think Norris was joking because of how much like detail he went into. Awesome. Yes. That wasn't the only thing Norris told him, though. Norris bragged about abducting and killing four other teenage girls. He also told Jackson about a girl they had raped and let go and two other incidents where their kidnapping was unsuccessful. 
Jackson was concerned for his daughter's safety, especially for his 13-year-old daughter, since Nora seemed to take an interest in her. Yep. So he went to his attorney, who got him into contact with police. Jackson was directed to speak to the Hermosa Beach Police Department, since per his information, the abductions had happened in that area. Detective Paul Bynum takes Jackson's call, and he can't help but think that he's heard a similar story before. On September 31st of that year, police had spoken with a woman named Robin Robeck, who reported she had been sprayed with mace and thrown into a silver van. Two white men, who she described as being in their 30s, bound and raped her before um, releasing her. Yes. Very awful. Robin's account sounded eerily similar to one of the stories Norris had told Jackson. An investigator is dispatched to Robin's home in Oregon, and he shows her just several pictures of different men's mugshots. She doesn't hesitate at all and quickly points out Norris and Bideker's mugshots uh, out of, like, the piles from the picture, um, from the pictures. There you go. Erin, can I ask a clarifying question? Of course. The two guys, mm-hmm. Norris and Bideker. Bideker. And that's Norris, like Chuck Norris? Yeah, N-O-R-R-I-S. Okay. They, who was scared of for their 13-year-old daughter? The guy Norris was talking to. So his former cellmate, prison mate, uh, uh, Jackson. Oh. Yes. Okay, 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 okay. Yeah, so Joseph Jackson was like, you're telling me all this information. I have, you know, kids. Like, I have daughters. But, like, all the while eyeing up his daughter like a real creep. Yes. Like, that in a donut is gross, but then you're like, hey, here's what I did. Like, Mm -hmm. um, excuse you, sir, get the fuck out. Yes. That's so, okay. Thank you. I just was like, wait. No, there are a lot of different names, so definitely interrupt. Cue me with a mic making dog noises. (laughs) My dog's really pissed. Get out of here. Yeah. (laughs) Let's see. So yes, Robin picks out their mugshots. Um, Another woman, Jan Mallon, also reported her attempted abduction to police as well. Um, So people have been reporting these incidents. They just haven't, you know, figured out who the assailants were. Thankfully, um, so thankfully, Jan was able to escape their clutches, though. Bideker's whereabouts were unknown at the time, so Detective Bynum orders Norris be put under surveillance. The surveillance doesn't last very long, though. <laughs> Norris is spotted filling up bags of marijuana at his Redondo Beach apartment a few days later. Nice. Sorry, filling up bags? Bags. Like, they can literally see him through the windows, filling up bags. <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, hey, you're in, like, violation of your parole. I'm glad he's stupid. Oh my God, what an idiot. (laughs) Yes. Uh, So yeah, they place him under arrest. Bideker calls Norris, I believe that like same day. Uh, But a man who claims he's a friend of Norris's answers the phone. Bideker isn't buying this. He's pretty sure the man on the phone is a cop. And this tips him off that police are onto them and they will likely be paying him a visit next. So this gives him time to dispose of evidence before returning to his motel where officers were waiting to arrest him for the rape of Robin Robeck. Yeah. Turns out these men had colored pasts. Lawrence Bideker was born in 1940 and placed in an orphanage. The Bidekers adopted him, and due to his uh, adoptive father's job, they had to move around a lot. So they never really settled down anywhere for very long. His first criminal offense he committed was at the age of 12 when he was caught shoplifting. He claimed he continued stealing after that because it was a way for him to make up for the lack of love he received from his parents. 
Bideker was in and out of jail since he was 17 for a plethora of crimes, uh, including stealing cars, hit and runs, and burglary. During one of his prison stints, psychiatrists met with him and classified him as a borderline psychopath. Very cool. Another time, um, I'm not sure exactly when this happened, and I'm not sure who, but someone at the prison thought it would be interesting if Bideker took the prison guard test, since he had an IQ of 138, so fairly high IQ, pretty high. He apparently received the highest score anyone's gotten on the test, which is kind of scary. Say so he's smart and scary? Yes. And he took Double whammy. He took a... Like the test that the prison guards have to take. And he got, like, the highest score, at least from the time that he had taken it. Swell. Yeah, not Just swell. Isn't that terrifying? <laughs> what they don't tell you is he was the second person to take it, so. <laughs> the results were skewed. Yes. Correct, there's only one prison guard ever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't know if it's a universal test or what, but. Either way, I don't like it. No, not I at all. I don't think we should give this man any compliments. No. Mm-mm. He cheated. Nope. Yeah. Roy Norris was born in 1948. He seemingly had a normal childhood, but was described as a misfit. He would constantly get in trouble. He also had difficulty communicating with girls. Similar to Bitteker, I read that he also had a high IQ. I don't know what exactly it was, though. Um, Apparently not high enough since he was just, you know, filling up bags of marijuana (laughs) in the open. (laughs) High IQ doesn't mean you're actually that smart. I know, I know. You're more book smart, not street smart. I just want these guys to be idiots. I hate them both. Norris joined the Navy at 17 and was an electrician during the Vietnam War. His military career was short-lived. He was medically discharged after being um, charged with attempted rape. He was diagnosed with severe schizoid personality and was committed to Atascadero State Hospital as a mentally disordered sex offender. He was released from the hospital after five years, though, when doctors determined he wasn't a threat to society. That's where you're wrong. That's where you're wrong. And they were very wrong. So you have a schizoid personality hanging out with a bipolar personality? Borderline psychopath. Borderline psychopath. Yeah. Mm. Stir that pot. Mm. Uh huh. Mm. That's quite the pairing. I'm not eating. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -mm. (laughs) That food is spoiled. Yeah. He'd be, that'd be real spoiled. Spoiled stew, if you will. With these men in custody, detectives get warrants to search their residences and impound the van. Almost 500 Polaroid pictures of girls around Redondo and Hermosa beaches are found in their apartments. How many? Like, almost 500. But, okay, <gasps> for, for my peace of mind, is it 500 pictures of, like, three girls? Um, I... Sarah, you're so optimistic. I think it's, it's a mix. I think there are quite a lot of girls they took pictures of. More than one, less than 500? Yes, somewhere in that range. Hate it. Detectives noticed that two of the girls in the photographs had been reported missing a few months back, too. Yeah. They find even more disturbing evidence in the van. Women's jewelry, a sledgehammer, lubricant, and a leather sap are discovered. The most damning piece of evidence was a cassette tape that had recorded the rape and torture of a woman. Oh. Yeah. Detectives believe the girl's voice on the tape, um, who was like screaming and pleading with her assailants, belongs to Lynette Ledford. They have to contact her mother and ask her to come to no. the station to listen to the tape. No. What? No. Yeah. I don't know, like, how much she even had to listen to it. Hopefully not that much. Um, but... 
Lynette's mother knew right away that the girl on the tape was her daughter. Okay. Yeah. So that's how she had to identify that. So Bitteker denies being involved in any abductions or murders. Norris, however, is more willing to talk. Uh, But he's not just going to like divulge into their wrongdoings out of the goodness of his heart. Of course not. Never works that way. He meets with Deputy District Attorney Stephen Kay and agrees to testify against Bitteker if the death penalty gets taken off the table. So they do agree to Norris's terms. That always drives me crazy. Like, you think you can take people's lives, but yours is so sacred, sir? Mm-hmm. Sir? Okay, sir. It's like they have, like, the one up a little bit. Like, I'll tell you everything, but you have to do something for me first. Like, no, you're here. It's so sad that, like, truly, though, that's... Sometimes the investigators like only ammo, yeah, to that's like true. to solve it or to give the family closure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as long as they stay behind bars, it doesn't really matter. But yeah, yeah, yeah that's, that's true. true. Yeah. In a three-hour confession, Norris tells detectives that he befriended 39-year-old Bitteker at the San Luis Obispo Men's Colony Prison in 1977. Norris had been sentenced to three years to life for raping a 27-year-old woman, while Bitteker had been imprisoned for stabbing a store clerk who had tried to stop him from stealing a steak. Okay. Yeah. Like, from what I read, he, like, was in the grocery store, like, literally just walked out with it, and the work, like, a worker was like, hey, man, you gotta, gotta bring that back, you didn't pay for it. Yeah. And so he, like, stabbed him and tried to run away. But then other workers were able to, like, subdue him. Over a steak. Over a steak. Okay. No, I get it. Like, try to stop the criminal, but like, yee, your life is more important. Yeah. And who knows? Maybe the guy didn't even know he had a knife at the time. It's true. And he just, yeah. yeah. Like, he's just trying to do his job. Yeah. Norris seems very confrontational. Or is that Bitteker? This is Bitteker. Who's okay. Stabbed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You, yes. You will see who's the more confrontational one per, again, Norris's confessions and whatnot so oh, Lord. maybe okay. take that yeah. with a grain of salt too fair enough um because they're always going to make themselves seem the most innocent of course yeah like, i'm bad but i'm not that bad yeah, yeah. which we can talk about more because there are definitely some pieces in here that i'm like now did that really happen or are you just like throwing that in there to make you look maybe a little better i don't know mm-hmm. or is this what you wanted to happen yeah exactly The men realized they had something in common. They both fantasized about raping teenage girls. They spoke of abducting girls between the ages of 13 and 19 once they were released. Bideker was paroled in November 1978, and he found work easily. Again, he's got that high IQ. He got a lucrative job as a machinist for an aircraft manufacturing company where he raped in an almost six-figure salary. This is a guy who's been in and out of prison. Making almost six figures. <laughs> Guys. Guys, what did we do wrong? We do better, y'all. We gotta do better. Yeah. Norris was paroled two months later. He moved into his mother's trailer and got work as an electrician. In February 1979, Norris met Bideker at a downtown Los Angeles bar where they decided to turn their sick fantasies into reality. According to Becca Van Sambeck's Oxygen Piece, the men went in on a GM cargo van, which they nicknamed Murder Mac, and equipped it with police radar, locks that could be disabled from the inside, soundproofing, blackout windows, a bed, and a toolbox filled with different implements, such as screwdrivers, pliers, and ice picks. No. No. Not the pit my ride I want. 
Not the, not the episode of Pimp My Ride I want to watch. <laughs> no. That's not funny, but it is. I know. I'm trying to get some humor in here. Yeah. There's not much. dropping the curtain like, we've pimped your ride. Meet murder Mac, you dumbasses. No, we're the cops. Norris and Bittaker decided to test out their plan first. They wanted to see how difficult it would be to pick up girls. Unfortunately, they were uh, easily able to convince hitchhiking girls to come inside their van. They drove from Redondo Beach to Santa Monica, which was about like a 20-mile stretch. When they saw a hitchhiker, they would promise the girl a ride home or drugs, and then they would also typically ask the girl to take a picture with them. So some of those are just pictures they all took together, the pictures that the police found. When well, was this era again? When was 70s? This? Yeah, yeah, like 70s. Okay. the time of hitchhiking. Yeah, I mean, I figured I was just... I mean, yeah, yeah. 79. still do it today, so... The yeah. girl in my high school did it all the way to Illinois with just a hammer in her purse. My parents sat me down after and was like, I need you to just tell me you're never doing that. It's dangerous for anyone, but people who go in with a lot of confidence, gender regardless, just, it scares me. Mm-hmm. It's very scary. Mm-hmm. It is scary. Well, it's scary enough that she thought, you know, she had to have that hammer with her yeah. in order to protect herself if anything were to happen. Nope. So not worth it. No. no. Nope. Once they realized they would have little trouble picking up hitchhikers, they began the next step of their twisted plan. Rather than tempting girls with a ride home or weed, they would force their victims into the van. They bound and beat their victims with tools from the toolbox before raping them. Norris told investigators that they released these girls. Um, However, once they found the Upper Monroe Truck Trail, so it's a remote fire road in the Angeles National Forest in the San Gabriel Mountains, so pretty remote area, Bittaker and Norris were ready to enact the final part of their plan. This area was fenced off and locked, but Bittaker broke the lock on the gate and replaced it with one of his own. So. Oh my God. Okay. Yeah. In his confession tape, Norris said he and Bittaker had spotted 16-year-old Lucinda Cindy Lynn Schaefer on June 24th walking down a side street. She stood out to Norris because she was blonde and he preferred blondes. Cue me shaving my head. <laughs> yes. Shara. I just said Shara instead of Sarah because you said shave. Yeah, Shara's going to shave this head of yeah. hers. Mm-hmm. Say that five times fast. <laughs> Cindy's grandmother dropped her off at the Redondo Church around 725 for a senior high fellowship meeting. Cindy stayed at the church meeting for about 20 minutes before making her way back home on foot. When Norris and Bitterker pulled up to her and asked if she wanted to ride home, Cindy told them no and continued walking. They then asked if she wanted to smoke weed with them. She refused. And that's when they drove ahead a little bit of her and parked the van at the bottom of a hill. As Cindy got closer to them, Norris slid the van door open and pretended to, like, fiddle with something or try to act like he's fixing something. Cindy was only two blocks from her grandmother's house when Norris grabbed her and pulled her into the van. Bittaker turned the volume up on the radio in order to stifle Cindy's screams. She was bound and gagged for the hour drive to the Angeles National Forest. When they got to their destination, Bittaker instructed Norris to undress her. Cindy pleaded with them, saying she promised to do whatever they wanted if they wouldn't harm her. Uh, yeah. But Norris and Bittaker raped her multiple times that night. At one point, she asked Norris if they were going to kill her, and Norris said they wouldn't. 
According to the documentary, The Devil and the Death Penalty, Norris claims he apologized to Cindy and even wrote down his address and phone number for her to have in case there was anything he could do to make it up to her. Huh? That, see, there are little things like that that I'm like, I don't know if you actually did that. And why would you do that? Hey, I just committed a crazy crime on you, but just so you know, here's all my information in case you need anything. Maybe it's like one little thing to like absolve him of guilt a little bit. Like if I do this, I won't feel as guilty when... Or if I say I did it. Yeah. Yeah. Or he knows his guardian angel's writing down every pro and con, so he's got to really stack it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Could be a dark joke because it's terrible. Mm -hmm. Hate it. Norris had also mentioned in his confession that he didn't think Bittaker had been serious when he said he wanted to kill their victims. Again, don't know how true that is. Bittaker, however, convinced him that Cindy was a threat to them if they let her live. Yeah. At this point, like, Cindy knew she wasn't getting out of there alive and begged the men to let her pray before they killed her. (gasps) But they didn't give her the chance to. Oh, my God. Bittaker lifted her up from behind while Norris strangled her. Norris said he, like, caught a glimpse of Cindy's face and then he, like, lost it. He dropped his hands from her neck. He vomited and then Bittaker took over. Bittaker grabbed a coat hanger from the van and used pliers to tighten it around Cindy's neck, strangling her to death. They wrapped her in a shower curtain before throwing her body over the canyon. I am horrified. Yes. Yes. Thank you. And it gets worse from here. So Great. Yeah. I also don't believe that man says, but okay. No, I definitely don't believe everything he says. It's trash. He's almost painting himself to be like, the B player in the game. Like, I'm really just as much of a victim. I thought we were just going to rape people, and he took it to another level. Right. That's exactly it. Yeah. I definitely get that vibe. Get out of here. No Mm -hmm. one believes you. You were trash. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, he's the one that's being pulled along to, like, Bitterker's plan. Like, this is all his thing. I'm just along for the ride. Guess what? It's still a choice, and you're still doing it. Yeah. A thousand percent. Oh, and here's... I thought this was horrible. So... Norris actually forgets the name of their second victim. Oh, convenient. Yeah. So like during the confession, he's like, well, wait, I don't know who that was. Uh, Which he says is because the victim didn't turn him on as much as the other victims. Yeah, I'm sorry. I There's no words. There's no words. I just want to turn into the Tasmanian devil. I'm like, yeah, I'm zooming out of here. I'm out. Then maybe don't abduct people. Hmm? Maybe. Hmm? That'd be nice, wouldn't hmm. it? Maybe don't be a sick, twisted fuck. Maybe learn how to get some people skills and you can talk to women and not have to rape them and abuse them. Yeah. End of my TED talk. Goodbye. Uh, I'm sorry you suck. Goodbye. Yep. yep. Norris, uh, so yeah, he. I, I'm not sure if he ends up remembering or what, but it's determined that the second victim is 18-year-old Andrea Joy Hall. Andrea came from an impoverished family in Ohio and had moved to California in hopes for a better life and for a fresh start. She was having financial troubles, though. In order to make money, she would, like, go and sell her blood at a blood bank. So that's how much she, you know, needed money, which people do. Nothing wrong with that. Yeah, nothing wrong with that. On July 8th, she had been eating at McDonald's with her sister Pamela before hitchhiking to her boyfriend's house. Bittaker and Norris were driving towards Manhattan Beach when Bittaker saw Andrea walking in front of a KFC. Bittaker wanted to abduct her and told Norris to hide in the back of the van under the bed. Bittaker drove up next to Andrea and asked her if she needed a ride. She said yes and got inside. Bittaker asked Andrea if she wanted a drink, which was code for Norris to hold her down once she got close enough to him. So, like, there's a 
cooler underneath the bed. That was their code for whenever he should like jump out and grab Did the victim. Did they practice this? Well, it sounds very choreographed. Well, yeah, because they had, you know, taken girls and raped them, but then released them. Yeah, so they oh, did. So they had hour long trips into these mountains. Yeah, so they practice it first, and then they found where they were going to, um, you know, torture them and then commit the murders. At they do know there's like other hobbies, right? Because this one's disgusting. Apparently not. Yeah, they are trash human beings. When Andrea grabbed a drink from the cooler, she spotted Norris from under the bed. She tried to exit the vehicle, but was unable to. When they got to their hideout, Bittaker took photos of Andrea while they assaulted her. As day turned into night, Norris became agitated. Again, these are his, his words. He thought he saw headlights and believed it was getting late. He wanted to head home early so he wouldn't be tired for work in the morning. What a good Boy Scout you are. Yeah. Gotta go, gotta go to that job. Glad, right? glad you're worried about yourself and not, you know, the girl you're harming. I like cool. how he's, he almost seems inconvenienced by her presence. Like, you literally abducted this woman. Mm-hmm. You know how you can alleviate all these issues? If you just went home in the first place. Yeah. yeah. Just stop. And yeah. Leave, leave everyone alone. In the words of Nancy Reagan, just say no. Don't do it. Bitteker, um, however, wasn't done. He told Norris to drop him off at Glendora Mountain Road, which was a few hundred feet from the entrance to the Upper Monroe Truck Trail. Norris drove back to town, allegedly, allegedly to grab food, while Bitteker dragged Andrea out of the van and forced her to perform sexual acts while he photographed her. Bitteker raped Andrea, and as he told her he was going to kill her, he snapped a picture of her, um, obviously capturing, you know, a terrified expression on her face. He told her that he would listen to her plead for her life and that she should list off reasons why he shouldn't kill her. What a sick fuck. Very sick. And then at the end, you know, however many things she rattles off, Bitterker said he didn't believe the reasons she gave were sufficient, and he stabbed her in both sides of her skull with an ice pick before strangling her. When Norris returned, Bitteker told him he disposed of her body near the area they had um, gotten rid of Cindy's body at. Cool. Uh, Norris and Bitteker laid low for two months until they spotted 13-year-old Jacqueline Leah Lamp and 15-year-old Jackie Doris Gilliam sitting at a bus stop. They asked the girls if they wanted to hitch a ride to the beach. The girls said yes, and they get into the van. Not long into the drive, the girls realized the men were driving away from the beach. Bitteker tried to assure them that he was only looking for a place to park the van and smoke weed. Norris asked Jackie and Leah if they wanted something to drink. As he made his way to the back of the van, he grabbed um, the leather sap and just struck Leah across the head. Oh, no. Believing he had knocked her out cold, he made a grab for Jackie, but to his surprise, a conscious Leah made a break for the door. Do it, Leah, do it. Yes. No. I know. Bitteker slammed on his brakes as Leah slid the van door open. Before she could escape, Bitteker punched her in the face, which caused her to, you know, fall towards the back of the van. Mm-hmm. Leah's screams attracted the attention of people playing on the tennis courts they are parked near, because again, it's broad daylight when this is mm-hmm. happening. Bitteker explained to these people that Leah was going through a bad acid trip and they were trying to take her home. Before the onlookers could, like, even ask any questions, they peeled off. So I don't know if anyone even, like, contacted police after that. It was like, we just saw something weird, but... Aren't these girls 13? 13 and 15. 
Yes. Okay. So they're pretty, I mean, mm. young. I would and have. as we just said, this is the 70s. It's not 2022 where 13-year-olds could pass for like 17-year-olds. They looked every bit of 13, I'm sure. Yes. Regardless. And people, regardless, someone is screaming in trouble. Well, no, yes. I'm saying it's just the optics. You're telling me a 13-year-old girl is taking acid with oh, two 30-year-old yeah, yeah. men that's and right. no one thinks that's odd? Which I don't even know if they, like, if the people on the tennis court even got a good look at them with how oh, the van is she was. That's fair. Yeah. So they might not even have known how young they were. Always call the cops. Always. Always It's call. their literal job to do that. To check yeah. in on Again, them. maybe someone did, but I didn't read anything about it. So it's just unfortunate. Like one of them tried to escape and just couldn't. <sighs> yeah. The men discovered that Jackie was a virgin and they raped her for hours. Awesome. Norris was tasked with taking photographs of the assault along with recording Jackie's rape. So this was actually one of the tapes that Bideker disposed of, which to this day has never been recovered. The men didn't rape Leah, but they did force her to take sexually explicit pictures. They actually spent the night in the Angeles National Forest. So while one of the men slept um, next to their victims, might I add, the other was awake to stand watch. So how terrifying that was, I can't imagine. Those girls aren't sleeping. Oh no, I imagine not. The men, probably. Not the the girls. On the morning of September 3rd, Bideker drove the van around Glendora Mountain Road. At one point, they even stopped at a convenience store in Glendora. In the afternoon, Bideker grabbed Leah and tied her to a tree, leaving her on her own in the mountains. Oh my god! (gasps) Yeah. They returned to the area from the day before, and they took turns raping and photographing Jackie for hours yet again. When they were finished, they drove back to where they had left Leah, um, grabbed her, and then headed back down the Upper Monroe Truck Trail. All this time, they apparently were telling the girls they would be taking them home soon. So it's all fucked up. This is disgusting. Yeah. Yeah. In his testimony, Norris told detectives he tried convincing Bitteker to let Jackie go. I call bullshit too. He had spoken to Jackie apparently, promising to give her money for a moped so she wouldn't have to hitchhike anymore, and he even gave her his phone number. Again, these little things he's saying, I guess. Shut the fuck up. Yeah. Trying to make him look better? I don't know. Even if he did say this, to me, this makes you look way worse. Yeah. It does, yeah. But then he does like the complete opposite though, because then in his confession, he told Bideker to give Jackie a quick death. But- yeah. Oh, yeah. you thought the last two days of horror wasn't enough? That yeah. wasn't bad, but the quick death, we have to make sure. I don't know. Um, but obviously, Bideker didn't want to do that. When Bideker parked the van, Norris got out. Um, he says he walked down the road away from what was about to happen. Bideker grabbed an ice pick and vice grips from his toolbox, which he used to torture Jackie with. Norris was about 50 feet away, but he could still hear Jackie's screams from that distance. Norris returned to the van just as Bideker was strangling Jackie to death. Leah, who was unconscious from sleeping pills, was hit in the back of the head with a sledgehammer. So while Norris hit her with the sledgehammer, Bideker strangled her to death. They threw Leah's and Jackie's bodies over a quick uh, over a cliff, um, and in total, they had been held captive for about fifty-eight hours. This is so gruesome. It's very. Gr- how does a person get there? You know what I'm saying? Like, mm-hmm. how do you? I don't know. Okay. I don't know. It's messed up. I'm I'm surprised I haven't had nightmares. Maybe I will. And again, I'm blaming Megan for all this. Megan. <laughs> and my psyche. <laughs> Megatron. 
Norris told detectives he and Bitteker watched their final victim, Lynette Ledford, walk down Tuxford Street at Sunland Boulevard. They decided to extend their hunting ground that evening and look for a victim around the San Fernando Valley area. So that's also what's terrifying to me is that they were starting to move to different mm-hmm. areas now, like mm-hmm. which would have made it more difficult to track them. Yes. yes. And I was also, I watched um, a documentary and then an episode about um, – you know, the serial killers in this case and how there were, like, obviously other serial killers roaming around, too. Mm-hmm. Like, how difficult it would have been to, like, pinpoint, like, is this the Hillside Strangler? Is it um, the Night Stalker? Like, all the yeah. other stuff. So, too yeah. It, there was a lot much. going on. A lot of serial killers at the same time. Richard Chase. Richard, yeah. So, yeah. Overall, terrifying that this could have gone on for even longer than it did. When asked if um, she needed a ride home, Lynette said yes, and she entered the van. According to Medium.com, her decision may have been due to the fact that she actually recognized Bitteker. It turns out he was a regular customer at the restaurant she worked at. Oh. Mm-hmm. She, oh, okay. <laughs> she told them where she lived, but while she was giving them directions, Bitteker turned down a dirt road and put the car in park. He grabbed her and threw her to the back of the van. So instead of waiting, so this time, instead of waiting until they got to their hideaway, Bitteker told Norris to take the wheel and, turning on the tape recorder, began to rape and torture Lynette as they got on the freeway. So he's not even waiting at this point. He's losing his mind. Yeah, it's getting worse and worse every single time. So they are escalating. Yes, definitely. Norris then raped and tortured her next. He wasn't happy from what he said that Lynette didn't appear afraid of him so he grabbed the sledgehammer and hit it with it as hard as he could multiple times Norris initially told investigators that he and Bitteker had both killed Lynette but then he did change his story he said Bitteker instructed him to kill Lynette which he did by strangling her with a coat hanger so he only did it because he had to do it Yes. yes. Because Big Bad Bitteker was telling me to do it. Yeah, like per his words, he was saying how Bitteker had been like killing the girls and strangling them, and Bitteker was like, no, now you have to kill this girl. From per Norris's, you know, confession. Again, I'm gonna go ahead and call bullshit. Yes. Double bullshit. Uh-huh. They had gotten away with four murders and Bitteker was feeling cocky. He thought it would be more thrilling to toss Lynette's body in someone's front lawn. He also wanted to see how the media would react. So, because in this case, they found her body right away. So they didn't just toss her body over the canyon like they had done the other victims. This one, Bitteker wanted people to see and react to. Again, escalating. That's so fucked up. It is very messed up. Like, did no one hug you as a child because... Well, apparently his parents didn't love him. From what he said, I don't know. Part of Norris's plea deal is for him to show detectives where he and Bitteker dumped the victim's bodies. The Angeles National Forest was overgrown, but a search team discovered human bones in an area Norris had pointed out. A skull with part of its jaw missing um, that had clear signs of blunt force trauma was determined to be Leah Lamp. Another skull that had no teeth in it, but appeared to have been struck with an ice pick. Or, I've actually read in other sources that an ice pick was still in the skull. I don't know which one's true. Yeah, I don't know if that's true or just embellished a little bit. Mm. Uh, But this skull belonged to Jackie Gilliam. While detectives were conducting their searches, the area had gotten some bad weather. 
Torrential downpours were halting search efforts, which also could, you know, lead to evidence being washed away. So during the documentary, Kay talked about how if they wouldn't have started the search efforts when they did, like if they would have waited, a, you know, a couple more days, they may never have found these girls' remains at all. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, Cindy Schaefer's and Angela Hall's remains have uh, never been found to this day, sadly. So they, their remains have still never been found. Yeah. Bittaker's trial began in January 1981. The case the defense presented painted Norris as uh, the ringleader and the one that should be res- held responsible for the victim's deaths, which I feel like that's the only thing they got going. Yeah. Oh, no, it wasn't Bittaker. It was Norris. Oh, no, it wasn't Norris. It was Bittaker. Yeah. Who yeah. are you going to believe? Mm-hmm. Neither. You guys both suck. Yeah. yeah. The audio recording of Lynette's assault and torture was played for the court. E. It was condensed to 17 minutes, and before it was played, the prosecution told the jury that this would give them some idea of what hell was like. I mean, they were true. Uh, The audio was so horrific that people were walking out of the courtroom in tears. Some even got sick after listening to it for a few minutes, like people Mm -hmm. left to vomit. I, yeah. I don't blame them. It's, yeah, I'm sure it's terrible. Um, And then even before the trial, I heard that attorneys, like, had to listen to the tape, but they demanded that it be turned off. I think they did have to end up listening to the whole thing, but, like, they had to, like, stop take it, break. take yeah. breaks, come back, take a break. I couldn't imagine having to listen to it. No. no. And according to Medium.com, several jurors needed counseling after hearing the tape. I That's 100% believe that. how fucked up it was. Well, do you remember what TV was like in the 70s? You'd, like, hee-haw, like, all these very much, like, American idealist stuff. Like, it's not very crazy true crime no. so they yeah, going that's to a true. courtroom like we're gonna play something crazy and you're like okay like whatever uh-huh. i can handle it and that's what you hear like you have nothing to prepare yourself yes i mean 17 minutes of it give me a minute and i'm like send him to jail that's all i yeah. have yeah yeah you don't need to listen to all that no during his cross-examination bitteker said the recording was of a consensual threesome and lynette's screams were just foreplay that's what he's trying to say that's what you're trying to say literally yeah the nastiest human i've ever i think we've talked about one of yeah as the tape played for the courtroom bitteker smiled and appeared calm and relaxed he never showed remorse or guilt for his crimes at all well he's the borderline psychopath right borderline psychopath so i know know the part of the brain like with the heat like the emotions and stuff yeah he has no empathy so he's not going to react the way we are reacting right now Ooh. I hate it. Yeah. Sorry, everyone. Yeah, no empathy also does does justify like, yeah, I, I know for a fact you didn't give them your phone number. You didn't yeah. you didn't you didn't comfort them. Well, and if you no, did, no. it was mostly to play with them. Yeah. I highly doubt it was an actual kind gesture. Exactly. It was more yes. so like psychological torch, like, we'll let you go. Kidding, now we're gonna hurt you more. Exactly. We'll let you go. Kidding. Yeah. I do agree with that actually. I think it was more like messing with them, messing with their heads. Yeah. Versus, like, he actually wanted to do that or to come off as, like, the nicer one. Let's say that was true. He did, like, feel some remorse. He gave their number. You would not be smiling in court. No. You would be softly sobbing. You would at least look remorseful because you would remember, like, I knew that wasn't the best idea to do that. Oh, yeah. Trash. Very trash. 
On February 17th, the jury found Bittaker guilty of five counts of first-degree murder, one charge of conspiracy to commit first-degree murder, five charges of kidnapping, nine charges of rape, two charges of forcible oral copulation, one charge of sodomy, and three charges of unlawful possession of a firearm. They got him on a lot. Bye. Hell yeah. A week later, the jury unanimously sentenced him to death. Bittaker was transported to San Quentin State Prison on March 30th. During, see, he's so messed up. During his stay, he signed autographs for fellow inmates under the name Pliers Bittaker in reference to um, his favorite tool he used from his toolbox. Isn't that nuts? I was just about to argue against the death penalty because I feel like those people deserve to be in prison forever. Like, right, I don't right, want right, your right life to be over that quick. I don't really think it's that's true. fair. It's true. I said, we were watching, me and Wes were watching some documentary the other day. Um, the one about the Turpin family. Mm-hmm. And uh, they got sentenced to life. And I was like, as soon as I like almost said they should die, I was like, no, they should suffer in jail because mm-hmm. of what they've done. They, you should have to suffer even a drop in the bucket of what you've put people through. But if he's signing autographs... He can go fuck himself. To fellow inmates, apparently, yeah. It makes me want to take a baseball bat to his shins. Like, I mean, I don't know if they really want him or if he's, like, here. Oh. I don't, I don't know. You should not be a hero in prison. Goodbye. No, hopefully he wasn't, but messed up. Uh, so, Bittaker's execution date was set for December 29th, 1989, but it was extended after he made appeals, which were all rejected <laughs> the shocked no nah, not at all the la times reported justice alan e brossard upheld bittaker's death sentence in his decision he wrote quote the evidence was graphic and compelling showing not only the defendant's commission of the crimes but also his careful and deliberate planning of the crimes the astonishing cruelty which with, with which they were committed and his intent to continue to commit crimes of this character end quote starting in 1983 Bittaker filed over 40 frivolous lawsuits against the prison, accusing them of mistreatment. <laughs> it gets better. You're not serious. It gets better. Uh, confiscating 230 pinup pictures of women, exposing him to tobacco, and then prohibiting the drug after he had become addicted to it, failing to provide him a copy of Hustler magazine, refusing to allow him to speak with Norris, and serving him broken cookies and soggy sandwiches for lunch. Oh my god. Like, what a hard time he's having. I know. I'm about to flip this motherfucking table. Are you kidding me? No, no Hustler. Not. That's a real crime. Yeah. Write a letter. A broken cookie? Mm-hmm. Break your cookie, so It's like, you get cookies? Yeah. Apparently. You deserve dirt. Ugh. These are the people that I do want to go to, like, the CIA black sites. Like, maybe they have some secrets. You find out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm. Mm. Let's see what letters you write then, sir. Mm-hmm. In 1993, Bitteker was deemed a vexatious litigant, which is an individual who repeatedly files numerous frivolous lawsuits that are without legal merit. Like he's just mm. doing it. Thank you for defining that. Thank you for defining that. Yeah. Oh, well, the, one of the documentaries I watched, like The Devil and the Death Penalty. So it was, I think it was like filmed in 2012, came out in 2014. And it really focuses, I mean, it focused on the whole case, but at the end, it had a really big chunk about all of this legal stuff and what he was doing and more about like the death penalty in California. So I definitely didn't dive into it as much as like that did, but it was interesting to like hear. So yes, I got a lot of this information from that documentary. Okay. Okay. So I was like, oh, a new word. Now a new term (laughs) I know. I like it. Yes. Uh, so a vexatious litigant cannot file additional lawsuits without the presiding judge of the trial court determining that the suit has merit. 
So now we can no longer, like, file anything. Bye. Bitteker appealed this ruling, stating that the frivolous lawsuits had nothing to do with his criminal lawsuit and appeals. And uh, his execution couldn't be held until this appeal was considered. Because they always have to consider these appeals and whatnot. Mm -hmm. His execution date would never come, though. There was a moratorium. So this is just a temporary, like, prohibition on the death penalty in 2006. This halted executions for, from my understanding, for about like six years until the moratorium was over. But now another moratorium was ordered in 2019 by Governor Gavin Newsom and will be in place for as long as he, he is in office. So there's going to be no death penalties in California until he's done. But then someone else changes it. Uh, so Bitteker died on December 13th, 2019 in prison of natural causes. He was 79 years old when that happened. On March 18th, 1980, Norris pled guilty to four counts of first-degree murder, one count of second-degree murder, two counts of rape, and one count of robbery. He was sentenced to 45 years to life in prison and incarcerated in the state prison facility in Corcoran, California. Norris had his first mandatory parole hearing in 2009, which he opted not to attend. I don't know why. Uh, so, uh... And then it was pushed back 10 years, but he was denied parole in 2019. And on February 24th, 2020, he died of natural causes at the age of 72 after being transferred to the California Medical Facility. Kay had recurring nightmares for years after the trial. He would hear the victims screaming and he would try to save the girls, but he always woke up before he could. Detective Paul Bynum unalived himself in December 1987 at the age of 39 he left a 10-page suicide note where he specifically stated that Bitteker, uh, the Bitteker and Norris case tormented him. I bet. Yeah. He was afraid that they would be released from prison at some point, and not only would they come after him, they would hurt his wife and daughter. Uh, so that was very upsetting to hear. Well, yeah, we're just cringing at the details you're giving us, Aaron. He had to see all of it, solve it, catch them, yeah. prosecute them. That's so much detail he had to get and listen to. Mm -hmm. He probably had a say in what 17 minutes the jury heard. So he probably heard the whole thing. Oh, yeah. Because oh, yeah. well, you have to watch it for clues, evidence. Yeah. Well, here's here's what's wild. I thought this was, like, really interesting. Uh, today, the tape of Lynette's torture is used at the FBI Academy in Quantico, Virginia, as a way to desensitize future agents to the reality of torture and murder. Whoa. So they're, like, made to listen to it to desensitize them. Ooh. Holy shit. I am glad I did not fill out the application. Whenever I was graduating college, I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do. Oh, yeah? And I was like, well... I've been watching a lot of Criminal Minds. I could totally go to the FBI and do that stuff. And my dad was like, I don't, I don't think you want to do that, Sarah. And I was like, no, totally. He's like, it's not the TV show. I promise you that. And thank God. Yeah. It definitely looks more, I guess, fun on TV than it really yeah. is yeah. in real life. And the shit you actually do see. Very scary. Oh, God. I can't imagine. The last thing I'll talk about um, is about this documentary that was released in 2021 on Peacock called The Toolbox Killer. Um, I don't know about you guys. I don't have Peacock. So that's another that's another streaming service I don't need. So I don't have it. And I was like, I really don't want to like only get it just to watch this documentary. Uh, so I didn't. But I read articles about it. Um, and it contains telephone conversations between criminologist Laura Brand and Bitteker while he was on death row. Okay. Oh. Brand was wanting to get a peek into the mind of a criminal sadist while also possibly unearthing the location of uh, Andrea Hall and Cindy Schaefer's remains. 
According to Newsweek, Brand met with Bideker in person, um, I think a little bit before his death, and he showed her a map of the San Gabriel Mountains and pointed to the areas where he claimed to have dumped their bodies. He apparently also told her where he could find the uh, the tape of Jackie's torture. Um, However, like I mentioned earlier, the tape and these victims' remains have yet to be discovered. So who knows if he really gave her the right information or if any searches have really been conducted. Or if he's still just playing games with people. Yeah. And now we will probably never know at this point. Yeah. Brand told Newsweek that she was shocked by the conversation she had with Bideker. Quote, he really held on so he could come down to the visiting room, but he was in a wheelchair and he was very frail. It was probably one of the most intense experiences I've ever had to have with a serial killer about dying. He was crying. He was scared of needles. He said to me, I'm so scared I'm getting a needle in my arm. And I said, you put ice picks in people's ears and you are scared of a needle? It was mind-blowing to actually see him and hear what he was saying right before death and him going through the motions, end quote. How eerie is that, too, to watch a frail old man explain these horrific murders? Because, like, in his 30s when he did it, you can picture it. But, like, then you just have, like, imagine a a cute old grandpa. Like, Mm -hmm. and then there's, like, yeah, there's a picture of them. And I was like, I don't know if I want to take a picture with that guy. Mm -mm. Yeah. Even if he is, like, an old man. Looks like you could probably snap him in two, but. Well, now I don't want to snap him. I just want to put a needle in him. (laughs) Well, that did not happen. Yeah. Brand also had the opportunity to speak with Norris, who told her he was under the influence of drugs during the murders. She thinks this is total BS. And again, he's just trying to absolve himself of guilt. Like making excuses. He's a little weenie. Oh, yeah. You did it, sir. So suck it up. Yeah. 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 I have strong opinions. Very, very. (laughs) You weenie. Yeah, you weenie. Uh, Brand also spoke with Fox News, where she revealed Bideker's plans for future victims, so that he told her, quote, he was going to buy acid to burn out the eardrums and eye sockets of his next victims. He was going to build an underground compound to hold girls and torture them. And he believed he had the brains to pull this off, end quote. Here's where you get me why. Like, what is the point of any of this? Just to watch people be in pain? You mean for them? These are rhetorical questions. I realize that. It just... They had fantasies and they decided they were going to make them reality. And then, yeah, I don't. Here's why psych is my major. Because I want to know, like, how did you get to point C? Like, where did these fantasies start? Where? I wouldn't even be able to think that up if I tried. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I can see potentially where Norris comes from because he was sexually assaulting people. And that's how he ended up in prison. Yeah. Uh, But it seems with Bitteker, he was just stealing, hit and runs. Stabbing people. <laughs> Just a sleazy, yeah. hot-headed guy. Yeah. Then they oh, teamed up. Man. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. Quite the terrible pair. Uh, but yeah, that is the story of the toolbox killers. They are Thanks, horrible. Aaron. Aaron. <laughs> you, don't have to, you don't have to say anything. They're gross, but it is, again, fascinating is the wrong word, but I always do want to know, like, why, though? Like, mm-hmm. how did you get there? Yep. Definitely, like trying to pick their brains about it, which I feel like is interesting because, I mean, I guess it doesn't happen all the time, but, like, sometimes they, like, give reasons for it, mm-hmm. and it seems like they just, they didn't, or they didn't care to. Like, why did you do it? Also, why are you trying to shirk responsibility when your prints and everything are all over that van? Like, you've obviously done it, so. Yes. Norris, goodbye. Interesting Bye. case, Bye. though. Thanks, Megan, for suggesting it. 
Yeah. Thanks, sure. Megan. Sure. Yeah. Okay. I'm very positive. Thank you. Yeah. I definitely won't do the next one she wants me to do until way later. Trust me. Trust me. No, no one wants vibes. to hear that. No negatrons. Yeah. None of that. So yeah, I know that was a very heavy one, but thanks mm. for listening to that. Yeah. If you did, I guess, enjoy it, or if you want to hear, you know, other true crime stories that I haven't covered, then send in an email at sinistersunrisepodcast at gmail.com. Um, or if you have any uh, human mind, paranormal stories, group topics you think we all could cover, send those in too. You can give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. You can also rate us on Spotify as well. Give us those five stars. A nice comment would be great too. <laughs> um, you can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Sinister Sunrise Podcast at gmail.com. And we also have a TikTok you can check out. That's Sinister underscore Sunrise underscore podcast. And I think that's it for episode 115. Did I miss anything? Uh, I don't think so. Cool. These are just our tales of why you should never hitchhike. Yep. <laughs> Stay sinister. Bye. 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 Sorry. <laughs> <laughs>